Hi there, and welcome back to the Energy Sector Heroes podcast. My name is Michelle Fraser, and every week I will speak with incredible people who share their lessons, experiences, and stories from their time spent in the energy sector. Hi there, and welcome back again to this week's episode. If you're new to the show, then please take a second to subscribe and even consider sharing the show with just one other person. This week, I am joined by Stuart Broadley. Stuart is an incredible CEO at the Energy Industry Council, which I'm quite excited about, actually. Stuart, would you like to introduce yourself, please? Yeah, hi, Michelle. Um, So uh, thanks for asking me on your podcast show. Yeah, so I'm Stuart Broadley, CEO of Energy Industries Council, sort of often known as the EIC. Been here for seven years or so. And yeah, looking forward to sharing a few stories. Okay, so how did you get started off in the energy sector then? Well, it all goes back actually to me meeting my wife. And we met first term, first year university. And it was, yeah, with um, love struck immediately. And you're thinking, what's this got to do with answering the question? Well, of course, uh, we then got married immediately after leaving university. And I didn't have a job or a car or a house or anything. It was all very romantic. But then it quickly became obvious that, okay, I needed to get going here. So um, I then went into Lucas Aerospace first as a graduate engineer. And uh, Lucas Aerospace made a lot of aerospace equipment uh, for civil and military aircraft. And that gave me a grounding in, if you like, business and manufacturing processes. And I actually did a master's while I was there in uh, manufacturing systems as well. And uh, they had a kind of a graduate sort of a training scheme where you moved in what used to be called the Cook's Tour process. It really dates me using that language. Nobody would know what I'm talking about anymore. But uh, it's kind of you go from department to department. Mm. getting a couple of weeks in each area, really learning about a business. And people these days don't get that kind of training on all aspects of a business before they get started and become a specialist. But that's what I did. And it really helped me. But then, as I say, uh, having done my first degree, where I met my wife in design, I then did a second one uh, with Lucas in manufacturing. So uh, I left Lucas after four years, because at that point, I then had three kids. Uh, So I was learning a lot, but not earning a lot. And uh, that's where then I moved uh, for the first time into the energy sector, where I I moved uh, from Wolverhampton to Gateshead, actually, and started uh, my first job as a general manager. I was only 27, was asked to run a large factory, large in physical terms, factory that made offshore cranes, nuclear cranes, uh, military equipment. And you may ask, how did someone who's only 27 get a job like that? Well, that is a story I can tell if you want. But that's how it started, is um, after yeah, after being very motivated to get a job and get going and earn some money th- through meeting um, the, the woman of my dreams, it all became very real very quickly, and I had to get going. And that's, that's how it started. Once I then quickly moved into actually running a business, uh, which was a Rolls-Royce business uh, called Clark Chapman in Gateshead, then uh, things got moving from there. And I stayed really in the energy sector from then until today. Okay. Did you have any role models during your career? And, what, and why did you find them? Why did you find them inspirational? I've been lucky enough to have a number of role models in my career. Actually, so when I first went to Gateshead and ended up running this factory as a very young man, that was probably my first role model. It was a guy called Barry Morgan, who was the managing director of the Clark Chapman Group of Companies, 
which was owned uh, fully by Rolls-Royce. And he was the, the guy who took the first big risk in me. He saw something in me that I didn't see, actually, which was someone who could take on a challenge and, you know, and provide a completely fresh approach to it. So the, so the Clark Chapman business, as was back then, was a 100-year-old business in a, in, a, in a very old facility, but had great skills and, you know, was manufacturing large equipment and his heritage had been in marine equipment, uh, particularly uh, military marine equipment for the British uh, Royal Navy. But a transition towards, you know, sort of oil and gas equipment, nuclear equipment, and and the, he was the guy who brought me in actually a little bit under a pretense of a manufacturing systems kind of optimization role. But then when I arrived, he was like, actually, Stuart, I think I'm going to get you to run the business. And it was a challenging process of coming into a business, an, an established business that was actually heavily unionized and very set in its ways. And uh, I was sort of parachuted in to make changes to that business and rescue it, you could say. Uh, and we're talking now back in the uh, mid-90s is when we're talking about this all happened. It's fair to say that the unions were not happy that this young guy had been brought in and uh, they definitely tried to make the life difficult for me. And uh, we ended up with a six-week strike and, and a relative you know, high level of industrial dispute, trying to, yeah, trying to, uh, I guess, take advantage of this inexperienced person coming in. And I lent heavily on the, the MD of that group at the time, Barry Morgan, who coached me a lot on how to deal with that. He then supported me with bringing in an HR expert to help me find a good outcome to an industrial mm -hmm. dispute. You know, how do you get a win-win for everybody, which was something I hadn't got experience on. So I learned right there to work with experts and ask for help because you just cannot be an expert in everything when you come into a role. And I still like that today. I still look at things today and think, okay, I'm not an expert in that. I need help. So it's not just when you're young and inexperienced that I learned that lesson, but wow, did it help me then. And there's the absolute loyalty and support I had through those very difficult uh, couple of months which then resulted in a good outcome that the unions liked and we liked as, as wanting to change and grow the business, then did set us up. And within two years, we had transformed the business and we were winning awards for the work we were doing, both in manufacturing systems work, so layout work, new work contracts we'd won for bridging for the 90s, which was a big military vehicle and bridging system contract. And I think all of us felt in the end it was worth it, but it was tough back in those early days. And if without the support of certain key people in my early career, I don't think I would have made it. Having to deal with strike action in any time in your career is quite difficult. How did you even deal with that? Yeah, so it was a steep learning curve and uh, it wasn't always fun. Uh, but um, how I dealt with it was, as I say, I was um, partnered up with one of Rolls-Royce's most experienced HR professionals. His name was Derek Rains. And he was sent over to Gateshead to work with me to negotiate a good outcome and to partly kind of help me learn about industrial relations, um, help me to, to have the confidence to work my way through it, but also to make sure that, you know, that the process was run in a professional and, and, a, and you know, in the correct way. So, yeah, without that support, I, I wouldn't have been able to do it on my own. At least I don't think, I mean, who knows, but it felt feels like he just provided me with so much experience and knowledge and confidence. And we worked hand in hand through the day shift and the night shift over those six weeks to listen carefully to the concerns and complaints of the workforce, which what in the end I learned, of course, wasn't really about me. 
It was about what had happened before I arrived and the pent-up frustration that that all kind of burst when I arrived. In the end, we as a complete team, so the workforce of that business, which you know is, is still today a brilliant business, although with different owners, uh, it worked and we got a good outcome that everybody was pleased with. And it sort of released the built pent-up pressure of years of of difficulties. And we went forward very quickly from there. So so get an expert, an advisor, and a friend, basically, uh, to help you in the most difficult times is what I learned. And it's advice I would give to people all the time these days. Okay, excellent. Did you find it quite hard to get a win-win situation in that? No. It was hard to work through the initial industrial action, you know, sort of two sides which seem to be a long way apart which, uh, you know, there's a lot of industrial action in the world today, isn't there? And we sort of read in the press all the time about it seems like they're too far apart. But And it's not something I can really go into too much detail about, but but basically it needs a lot of listening uh, on both sides. And trust has to be rebuilt. And that's done through time and through, as I say, a kind of a, a, a building, a better understanding of what's behind the frustration and the gap in in perception of you know what what one side wants and another moving the idea of sides back to you know at the end of the day it's one business we're one group of people we all want success and and kind of getting a shared understanding of what that success looks like when you get to that point then a win-win outcome can be found and yeah it took us about 6 weeks to get to that point as i say you know we got lots of help uh, the whole business actually got lots of help to get there including the chairman of Rolls-Royce at the time, a guy called Sir Ralph Robbins. He also got involved. There was lots of people involved in helping us to get through this. And the outcome was a super outcome in the end for the whole business. And I think it was a turning point for the business as well. Okay. No, that's amazing. So what is the most challenging thing about your current role? Okay. So um, my current role is CEO of EIC, Energy Industries Council. We are one of the world's largest energy trade associations. And we're celebrating our 80th anniversary this year. And uh, interestingly, that's you celebrate with the oak rather than a diamond or platinum or something. It's oak at 80. So we've been planting oak trees this year. So EIC, um, our, we're a membership organization, energy trade association, not-for-profit. And we have 900 members. They are uh, all involved in the energy sectors of you know oil and gas or power or renewable, nuclear, maybe hydrogen, carbon capture, all around the world. And with the common denominator that they're working with us because we help them to grow their business faster and smarter. We have a lot of data that tells them where the best projects are around the world for them to pursue. And we have then a lot of events to help them meet the key decision makers. And we provide a lot of insights to help them understand this fast-changing and complicated way through at the moment. And in my job today, which I've been doing yeah, for more than seven years, um, I've never seen a market like we're currently living through. On the one side, unprecedented opportunity, truly a booming market around the world. But on the other side, um, a lot of still confusion and debate around what is the role of energy and which energy fuel or technology is the right one for the future. And how do we get to net zero? And how do we all be honest with ourselves about you know, the, the steps and challenges to get there and the timing to get there and the role of each energy technology, such as oil and gas, for instance. And I think that's the biggest challenge for anybody in my kind of role right now, is to bring all the world's stakeholders holders together. And that's not my sole purpose. I mean, there are many people in my sort of job who, for us to get our roles right, need all the stakeholders to get more aligned and have common understanding of what we're trying to do here 
in terms of having a shared set of values around energy, in terms of ultimately net zero, but also protecting the infrastructure and the capacity and the jobs, nurturing what we have around the world, protecting our infrastructure and our energy security, but ultimately then delivering a net zero outcome. That is challenging, to, uh, to say the least. And it's a big part of what it's a big part of what I'm increasingly involved in because what we see is a widening gap right now, unfortunately, between what the ambition is. So and what let's say policymakers talk about still, which is we must get to net zero and we we know we need to transition as quickly as as we promised in the past, we must stick to our targets. But the reality we see is there are more and more reasons to fear that that will not happen because of you know lots of delays in project timescales and challenges around you know the capacity of our energy systems around the world to handle these new technologies coming online as quickly as they would need to and lack of funding basically for all of these projects to happen changing policies and governments you know changing priorities around is net zero a problem or not and should it be accelerated or not all these dynamics very complicated mean that uh, to be able to guide and advise businesses and policymakers on on how to move this forward in step, all at the same time around the world, nurturing what we have and delivering the future outcome, that's a serious challenge. And uh, a lot of us are working on that right now. I was going to say that is quite a hard challenge to face, actually, because how do you keep everybody happy, I was going to say, because you would have the governments wanting to do one thing, the oil companies, energy companies wanting to do something else, and then you would have to try and find a solution in between. Because there isn't a lot of projects, because there isn't a lot of funding for new technology. How do, how do you even deal with that? Well, firstly, our job is not, we're not the the arbiter between government and, and oil companies. That's not our job, right? Our job is to be neutral in the process and and just to make sure that ultimately businesses are, are aware as much as possible of the changing environment that we're all operating in, the changing policy environment and, and economic environment and the energy strategic, you know, sort of priorities as they change around the world. We need our members to be aware of that so that they can make smart investment decisions. But... You're right. No, there is a there is a, a difference in view between all these different stakeholders. Policymakers want one thing, you know, shareholders and business owners and business you know boards of companies might ultimately share the basic values of what policymakers are saying, but they still also have to you know employ people, invest in their facilities, look after their existing contracts and customers while trying to change their businesses in line with these future policies as well. And that's where the challenges come, is that there is a growing gap now between what the policy says, which is we just need to do it, but the levers to deliver those policies in terms of you know, stimulating new technologies and new markets, in terms of moving the way money is moving into these new sectors, uh, in terms of transitioning skills and whole supply chains, yeah, they're, they're, they're not flowing through quickly enough and, and substantially enough to drive it at the pace that everybody wants. So, and at the moment, it's still a bit of a, um, an unspoken topic. You know, people don't really feel comfortable yet saying, let's say, as a policymaker, you're not going to find any yet in the world saying, we're in trouble, we're not going to hit our targets. None of them are saying that yet. And yet, I think now increasingly they're thinking it, but they're not comfortable saying it yet. And you've got many boards of companies around the world 
you know, who are saying we promise that we're going to achieve our own net zero roadmap to, you know, to get there by 2050 or something. But they're also probably increasingly feeling like if the if the cascading, you know, new projects and new funding set by these policies does not come through, it makes us impossible as a business to also deliver on that. So it's a growing problem and uh, it certainly is challenging. But I mean, the other side of this is we've never seen a market like this, right, where there is so much opportunity. And it's from an energy point of view, it's partly a post-COVID return to, you know, full activity all around the world, all at the same time. It's partly the focus on energy security because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, where everybody's been reminded of how critical it is that they have guaranteed supply, you know, of critical, you know, fuel and power supply, because they've learned that it can be switched off. And you look into Europe and, you know, gas supplies being switched off rapidly has been a sort of, you know, a sane reminder, a somber reminder for everybody of how you can't just assume that you'll always be able to pick and choose the power that you want or the fuel that you want at the price that you want. And I think there are many other kind of, you know, factors that are making people realize that they have to they have to get a balance between the net zero or the transition outcome we all want versus the cost of delivering that versus the strategic requirements to ensure security of supply. Those things are all a bit out of sync right now. And I would say right now, energy security dominates. Uh, and that means that, uh, therefore, people are prioritizing that supply of fuel and power is there for each country. And if that means delaying some of the transition outcomes, then that's increasingly a sort of Soviet outcome. And this is at government level, particularly. But as I say, this hasn't been picked up yet by those same policymakers that then will have to at some point say, actually, ultimately, this is going to now mean we're going to miss some of our longer term net zero targets. So we'll have to wait and see. Do you think we'll ever make a net zero target? Yeah, I don't see why we wouldn't. Because, uh, well, for a start, really, we have to, right? You, you've got to have a philosophical belief that this is the right thing to do. And I think a lot of people now do believe that. I think, secondly, technology-wise, we have a lot of the answers now of how to do it. And I think, thirdly, there is actually a lot of sort of project interest out there, which is starting to cascade into the supply chain, which shows that you know, this technology is moving from a nice theory to actually it's starting to happen and we're sort of creating new market models that will allow this to move forwards. And we've learned from, for instance, the growth of renewable power, such as onshore wind, offshore wind, solar power, that over the last 20 years, there's been a huge development in those new technologies. You know, the UK sometimes is more than 50% powered through renewable power, particularly when it's windy and sunny. That would never have happened if you go back 10, 15 years ago, where we were still heavily reliant on coal as a power source. And that's now completely eradicated, or almost eradicated in the UK. So I think there's no reason to say this the, this net zero concept is, is not possible, but it's also not deliverable if we, if we continue to have a policy discussion, which is separate from an industry reality. That has to be joined, back rejoined. Uh, and uh, pretty urgently, actually, have those adult discussions around, right, if we all want to do this, then currently the direction of travel will not get us there in time. And we need to urgently bring that uh, bring that either as an accelerated plan or an adult discussion around, you know, maybe 2050s now, 2060. And what do we think about that? Okay. It sounds amazing. I hope we do actually meet the net zero as well, actually. 
Is there anything you still want to achieve in your career? Okay, so I was very lucky to uh, pursue a global career, actually. I, I From 27 onwards, I was running businesses, and that, so running you know, large profit center businesses and have continued to do right the way through to today. So I was very lucky to do that. And, and um, they were increasingly global and I got the chance to live around the world as well. I lived in various countries in Europe. I lived in Canada for a while and I got to travel the world, which is, by the way, one of the great benefits of working in the energy industry uh, is it is truly a global industry and those joining the industry will get to travel the world and see the world, work around the world if, if they so desire. What I came to when I when I decided to come to this job as EIC and move into the not for profit world was it was a time to not so much slow down, but when you're running you know big global commercial businesses or parts of big businesses like that, it's a very unforgiving world, right? It's pretty you know cutthroat. You know, monthly or quarterly targets have to be hit. No excuses allowed. And after a while, you get to the point. I think at least I did. Uh, where I felt that the scope for innovation and new ideas and learning for me was was running out, and and it was it was more just brutal decision making uh, in what were very tough energy markets, and actually continue to be in many ways tough energy markets. So I was looking then for a chance to get back to learning more and giving more rather than just delivering and taking. And so I think that's what this job has provided for me has been a chance to now sort of perhaps share some of my learning, give back a lot more in the terms of I'm. it's less now about me personally developing. It's more about helping businesses to develop and doing anything I can to build a team of people that love doing that. So I think I've already sort of taken the chance to change direction in my own career when I, when I decided to take this role. And I must say it's been a huge privilege to work in this sort of business where you're working with policymakers and business leaders around the world and and you're doing it in a way which is really you know quite intimate you're working very closely with them uh, to to understand their genuine issues and try and help so when I look forward now from where I am I mean I'm I guess I'm hoping to stay at EIC I'm loving the job I have so that's one of the th- my ambitions going forward I think is to make sure that the work we do, has more impact, I think, is probably the ambition now, right? So when you're working in an organization like ours, and we've changed our business a lot in the last five years to make ourselves more relevant, more global, to have more impact, I think now what's needed with the energy market being so critical to all of us as consumers, as businesses, as policymakers, it's actually... One of the things that can make you lose your job if you're running a country is if you get the energy policy wrong, the cost of energy or the security of energy or your commitments around net zero. These are things now that are fundamental to being good at running a business or a country. And yet there isn't really a voice anywhere in the world that speaks clearly on behalf of industry around what what is right to deliver on all of these complicated balancing acts of security transition and affordability of energy, but represents all voices, you know, all industry players, not just a few big ones. So we know who the few big ones are that we keep hearing from, you know, the big international oil companies. But what about the thousands of companies that are actually doing the real work in the supply chain? And I think that's my goal now is to find a way to represent all of those companies around the world with a single amplified, strong, powerful voice to policymakers 
so that it gets less, it feels a bit less chaotic in terms of you go one country to another and they seem to have different views on energy policy. And even inside a country, one ministry versus another seem to have different views on it. And one year to the next, it seems to be changing as well. And I think that is unnecessary and unhelpful. It's expensive. It's it's very worrying for the people inside those industries around the world who don't get clear messaging about are they important or not? Do they have security or not? Should they invest or not? It affects investors and funding of those industries. And it definitely is starting to affect negatively the ability to achieve net zero. So I would say that's what is sorely needed around the world is a clearer single voice on behalf of the energy industry to help policymakers be better, more consistent, longer term decisions. And yeah, I think that is something EIC can do. And that's that is my my ambition now is to is to position us to do that. It's a lot of work to do that, right? So it's not an easy thing to do. You have to really then listen carefully to to the to the needs of industry around the world and then distill that down into three or four key messages basically that then can be transferred to policymakers in a consistent timely way in a powerful way that makes sense to them through cycles through policies so that whatever happens whether it's one party or another or one crisis or another these key messages around consistent energy policy decision making would help everybody if we can just clarify that and then say it in a way that's powerful enough that people believe it and the evidence backs it up and it sticks through different cycles. I don't see anybody else doing that. I think we can do that. And yeah, that would be the ambition. Okay. That sounds amazing. So if you were going to hire someone, maybe a graduate or senior, what would you look for? So we, yeah, we've doubled the size of our business in the last five years. And uh, our average age of our workforce is uh, well under 30. It's a very diverse workforce. We have a team that speaks uh, of 120 staff, more than 20 languages, 60% female. So we're very lucky and proud of the amazing diversity of our team. And so I would say the, the answer to question is not sort of who, what am I looking for? It's say, what am I not looking for? What I'm not looking for is the same as what we've done always in the past. What I'm looking for is to represent the industry of the future in the people we employ and in the way we think. And the industry of the future is so radically different from the industry of the past. You know, so it's much more global. It's much more integrated. It's much more diverse. It, it involves bringing together the rich and the poor, all parts of the world. And I think that's the way to build teams, is to think like that. Imagine if you had a team which works around the world, represents you know different groups of people with different strategies and different backgrounds and different ideas, different demographics, and they work seamlessly together. You must get better outcomes, uh, better decisions, better loyalty. It's more fun. The distribution and the fairness of decision-making and money is better as well. So I think that's the way we think, and we're, we're really lucky to run a business where we can sort of find an organizational approach and culture uh, which is working like that. No one's perfect, and we're not perfect either, but I think we're really lucky enough to have some huge talent around the world. So just to give an example of what I mean, so in the last five years, we built two what we call research hubs, one in Rio and one in Kuala, Lump in Kuala Lumpur. We, we had businesses there already but they were smaller businesses and the, each of them now employs between 20 and 30 people. 
Whereas five years ago, they employed sort of four to five people. And those people are people that have come in and are changing the way we think uh, as a business because they have so much energy and passion for you know, the, bringing their ideas into our business. And what we've done well is to not make those teams only work and think locally. They work and think globally for us, and they they are changing the way we work. They are changing the way we think as, you know, are we a British business or a global business? We, we don't think as a British business anymore. We think as a global business. You know, are we a business that is a membership business, or are we now a business which is a B2B business, and we definitely now feel we're B2B? Are we a business that's sort of a bit slow to change, or do we change? Do we love change and change quickly? And now we've become a love change, change quickly business. And it's because of the people we have. And the, I think the, the freedom we give people to innovate and try new things. We're, and um, it can be a bit scary, right? If you're running a business to have, really allow a lot of freedom for new ideas, unless you your culture is good at that. Culture is good at saying, I want your ideas. And I, I want to embrace them and try them and learn from them. And I think this is what we've got really good at. And so when we're looking to bring people in, that's what we're looking for. Okay. In your line of business, in your company, it must be really exciting to see all the new changes coming in, especially over the last maybe, what, five, five years, five, ten years? Because it has. The energy sector has never been so exciting than it is just now with all the different industries, all the, the new technologies being developed. Well, it's true, isn't it? It's, I, I would say this is the once-in-a-generation energy market, maybe a once-in-a-century energy market with – so much activity around the world all happening at the same time and so much activity covering all energy sectors. Uh, all are busy and so much drive for change, positive change around transition, but also kind of critical change around the cost of energy and the security of energy. And it's right at the heart of every policymaker's, you know, day and night thinking now is energy. It's, it's not no longer a side department. It's right at the heart of every country leader's thinking. I think there's another way of looking at it, though, which is its opportunity and its excitement. But you could also say, because we haven't really got good at this yet, we haven't really adapted, have we, as a planet yet, to thinking about energy in a in a seamless, smart, consistent way. It still feels a bit too chaotic. This brings quite a lot of risk, I would say. You know, in terms of you know, do we have an energy crisis around the corner? You know, you know, is the recession that's coming? Is that going to lead to, you know, suddenly, you know, a lack of resources? and a lack of funding for the energy needs of the planet? Is that going to further delay our transition plans? So I think this fun and this the sort of privilege we have to be part of this energy market right now is also dead serious, and that we have to make good, smart decisions, and we have to look in the rearview mirror while we're driving fast forwards to take advantage of this crazy and exciting market because there are challenges. And you know, that could come very quickly. And don't we, for those of us that are old enough to remember the boom and bust cycle of oil and gas, well, right now we're in a boom cycle and you would probably predict a bust is coming. Who knows when? But uh, I would say right now we have an energy industry right now that is not thinking bust. They're thinking boom and boom for a couple of years, maybe several years to come. And that is also something that kind of we're advising our members to Keep your eye on the rearview mirror. There could be a you know difficult market crash or shock, which may be energy caused, or it may be caused by something else that then impacts the energy market. So 
yeah, we've got to be careful while taking advantage of this market. Okay. Do you think that we will have another bust, actually? Because I, remember, I do remember the, the last one. It was quite catastrophic. Yeah. It would be a brave person to say that there isn't going to be a down cycle, right? I mean, it's just the nature of the world and the and the the commodities that we're working within that there will be a down cycle. How deep it is, how quickly it happens, how you know catastrophic it could be, I don't think anybody knows that, but I would say with 100% certainty there will be a bust, of course, at some point. And the advice we are giving to our members right now is it feels like it's three to five years away, but that could just be kind of industry lethargy, blindness, or even arrogance, you know, that uh, we're just assuming now we've got good times for several years to come. And, and our advice is you should always be looking closely at signals that something's happening that is negative cycle and uh, react quickly to it rather than assume oh, that won't happen to us because we know from history it does happen to us every time. No, that's amazing advice, actually. So have you had any career disasters and how have you handled them? <laughs> I mean, everybody has a career disaster or, or three, right? Uh, mm. I would say I've been lucky, right? Overall, I'd say I've been incredibly lucky to, to work in businesses where where I've been, I think I've been able to add some value. I've, been, I've learned a lot. I've worked with some amazing people. Over the, I guess now, 30 years or so of my career, I've worked in so many different countries and so many different sectors. So overall, I'd say I've been one of the lucky ones that's had a very positive experience. But of course, there have been times where it's been really hard. Probably one of the hardest ones is it's back again to this idea of boom and bust, right? Those times where I've been working in a business where, where the promises have been made upwards that uh, the markets are good and we're going to grow. Mm-hmm. And you're working in those businesses where you have quarterly targets that cannot be missed no matter what. And then the market collapses under your feet. And this has happened to me a couple of times where the market collapses and yet you've stuck with these promises. And you've then got bosses, shareholders, boards of companies that are not ready to adapt their own targets yet. And they put heavy pressure downwards on their whole team. And that included me to say, I don't care what's happening in the market. You've still got to hit your numbers. Those times are so stressful, right? Because you know the only way to do it uh, is to make short-term, very destructive decisions in order to hit some kind of short-term target, which you know longer term will be more damaging than it needs to be. And ultimately, that is about closure of businesses, and it's about redundancies, and it's about you know doing the very toughest things. And those times where I've been working in businesses where that's what it took. Well, those were stressful, difficult times. And those were the times where you go home at night and you question, what are you doing? You know, and, you know, and, uh, and your business, what is your business doing, you know, to act like that? So I'd say that those sort of situations are the hardest times and the hardest personally in terms of stress and lack of sleep and questioning, you know, yourself and your own values. But I think more importantly, you're questioning the industry at large and why does it operate like that? And that's why now I'm, watching the market we're in now in this boom time and using I'm maybe one of the only ones right now using language which is look out you know be ready for the bust when it comes it must come and don't be so shocked by it be ready for it act in a smarter way don't be so destructive when you do have to act if you if you think now and you're planning for it growing but always with a like an old 
boss of mine used to say, have a foot on the accelerator and a foot on the brake at the same time. That's the smartest way to run your business. And uh, I'm a little bit worried right now that businesses are just going for it right now. And uh, we may have already forgotten the lessons of the 2014 oil crisis, which is the last one and previous ones. Okay, but then having to deal with mass redundancies, that, that must be a huge pressure. Because, I mean, how do you even handle that? How do you even go about, you know, rolling that out on a mass, a mass, um, yeah, you know, a mass scale? Because it's, it's, it's something that I, I would probably never have the experience in doing that, but it, it would, it must be, it must be so distressing to have that on your, uh, that weight on your shoulders to do yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, basically it is, it's one of the worst days of your career your life, perhaps, because you know you're affecting people's livelihoods, mortgages, happiness. It's one of the problems of, of being in a in a role where you're running a profit center responsible for people's livelihoods. And uh, I think actually the way to manage it is, as I say, to have a culture of a business where you you put people first in that scenario rather than put profit first or promises first. And that's the point I was trying to make before, which is. The, the worst times of my career have been when I've been working for businesses where their culture was wrong. The culture was profit first and people last. I don't really want to name which businesses I'm talking about because I've worked for other businesses where the culture was completely opposite. It was all about people and customers and you know, the, and the money came when everything lined up and it came more than I've ever seen before when everything lined up. But when the market turned against them, they would put the people and the customers first and do the right thing and then repair the, you know, the infrastructure of the business in a smarter way. So I think it's about the culture of the business is, is, is where you want to work. You want to work for a business where people and customers are always first. And, and if you're a business that has made bad decisions and you're stuck with cost infrastructure, you know, sort of, um, you know, legacy decisions that mean you, it's hard for you to react quickly enough. And then you've got a culture in the business, which also then doesn't allow you to put your hands up and say, we've got a problem here. We have to work together to work through it. Then maybe you're not working in the right business. Okay. That's really good advice, actually. So what is your zone of genius? What are you most excellent at? <laughs> I don't know whether I have a zone of genius, but I can tell you what others say uh, about me, which is uh, I, I have a and this, so I was once taught this kind of language of your greatest strength is also your greatest weakness. So it's like a coin, two sides of a coin, right? One side of the coin is your greatest strength, and you flip the coin, that's your greatest weakness, and they're directly linked, right? Yeah. So I think my greatest strength is I naturally think sort of three years ahead. I can't help it actually. I'm always thinking three years ahead, and I work backwards from there. So I'm, you could say, therefore, a, a strategic thinker. I have a, uh, and I think I link that quite well with a sort of good environmental sensing of what, you know, listening to sort of big and small things around me to make a relatively informed view, which uses data, but also gut instinct to take a often, you know, what turns out to be a pretty sensible, accurate view of three years from now, we should be there, or three years from now, we could be there, or three years from now, we will be there. It kind of depends on whether you're in a growth mode or whether you're sort of following on decisions that have previously been made. But that sense of where we'll be in three years or where we could be and how to get there is sort of how I think about everything in my personal life, in my business life. It's very, I can't stop it, actually. It's just the way my head works. So I think that means in business terms, though, I can quite quickly work on the idea of we should go there. And that would be an exciting outcome. We can really look what we could achieve. 
look what's possible. And to, to set quite inspiring and, and to communicate, you know, quite inspiring goals and, you know, and changes. And this involves all sorts of things, right? It may be a growth plan. It may be a change plan. It may be collaboration. It may be new markets, new ideas. I don't it's on my own, of course. Of course, I'm always listening to others and, you know, they're putting those ideas together and, and always, of course, importantly, crediting others with their involvement in these things, but then trying to put it together and say, look where we could go. That's my probably strength. And that helps me, therefore, to run a business with a clear view of where we're going. The weakness that comes with that, of course, is that I've had to learn in my career how to manage is when you tend to think long-term, then it means you're not very good at thinking now, the detail and the minutiae of now. That means you can miss detail now, or it means you can leave people now a little bit behind who don't necessarily think three years ahead. Mm -hmm. So I've had to learn, and I've had a lot of coaching, actually, business coaching. And that's another piece of advice I would give is always look to have coaches in your business career. Formal and informal business coaches that are giving you, they are trusted to give you support and advice and ultimately get some training as well. When you understand yourself better, your kind of, you know, your strengths and weaknesses, your emotional intelligence and so on. When you get better understanding of that and you know you need to make changes, get help, get training. It works. You can learn. And I learned how to then surround myself with people that, that fill my weaknesses, but also I learned how to then be aware of my weaknesses that I may not catch the detail now and I may not always seamlessly bring everybody along with me on this journey to the future. And I've learned techniques to do that, such as you know, lots of regular strategy workshops, bringing all the senior team together on a regular basis and really working through problems without me sharing a view of where I think, getting the whole team to come up with their view and you know, us all signing up to something and going for it. And I didn't used to do that 20, 25 years ago. I used to just assume everybody. It's obvious to me. It's obvious to everybody how wrong I was. Okay. So now I love this process of getting everybody being involved in predicting and you know working towards a future plan, and then us all on the bus driving towards it. That's incredibly satisfying for me now. But I had to learn how to do that. Okay. So how did you learn to do that? Is that quite a quite a hard skill to pick up? Oh, I had to get coaching. I got training. I went to London Business School and did some training there. I had a business coach uh, who's still a personal friend of mine who uh, spent a lot of time training me on techniques to do it and actually sort of tailoring a process that was right for me. To uh, so Basically, I had to, I had to go through a bit of a crisis moment, I think, where I had to accept that it was me that was the problem. It was me that was going too fast and not thinking about how do I bring everybody along or I wasn't listening enough or I wasn't looking at the detail. Uh, and you have to accept that. You have to accept at some point you're not perfect. You know, I was not perfect and I needed help and learning and I had to be ready for that learning. Once you're ready for it, then, of course, the learning happens quickly because you really want it. It's not easy if, let's say, your boss says, you've got a weakness and I'm going to train you on fixing. I'm going to send you on a course and solve it for you. If you're not ready for it and you're resisting it and denying it, that may not work for you. So I think that's probably what I've learned is you yourself have to be ready and accept you've got a problem, you're not perfect, and you want to learn. Then then it's really effective. Don't wait for a crisis, if possible, though, to then realize I've got a problem I need to learn. Try and be more, try and be more eager to learn yourself, eager to improve, rather than wait for that crisis moment where you realize you've got it all wrong and and uh, you wished then at that point you'd have listened to your coaches in the previous years. Okay. So do you think it is important to to have coaches throughout it during yeah. your 
I've been super lucky to have formal and informal coaches and mentors and just friends often as well who I go to on an ongoing basis. Um, not not like every day, but um, on a regular basis and try and have FaceTime with them and just talk in a trusting way about how things are. And it's not always a coaching discussion. It's often just a discussion about the state of the industry or the state of you know personal life or and it's often two way, right? I mean, great coaches don't just coach; they they also get coached at the same time. They learn as much from you as they help you to learn yourself. And now, me when I'm coaching people, that, you know that that I sometimes help, I'm definitely learning as much from them as as perhaps I'm helping them. And I think great coaches think like that. Okay. No, that's an amazing message, actually. So what keeps you motivated when things get tough? Because your job must be quite tough, I would think so. Basically, it's two things. It's the feedback of my team and it's the feedback of our customers or our members in the case of the business I now run. So when I'm, you know, it's a brilliant you know, privilege and it's work with amazing people. And that that is such a motivator. It's so inspirational, isn't it, when you're, when you're working with people and they just give you a buzz with the, that obviously the fun or the progress or the the you know the innovation that they're that they're delivering and I think that's what keeps me going is when when I'm seeing the work of my team and what they're doing so I, I'm learning much more from them than they're learning from me because of the way they work and then I'm working with our member companies and I'm seeing the incredible work they're doing that inspires me again these are the things that keep me going definitely. So uh, it's it's very much living off the success of others uh, is what I find uh, very motivating. Okay. So that was excellent advice. Thank you very much. I'm going to wrap up things now. So that's all the questions I have today. I would like to thank Stuart for your time. That brings us to the end of another episode. Thanks for listening and see you next week. No, thank you. You're amazing. That brings us to the end of another episode. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, I'd like to gently encourage you to leave a five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts and share the show with another person. You can also follow me on LinkedIn or via my website, www.michellefraserconsultancy.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.